clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. We've been exploring politics from the candidates to the national political conventions, but none of this happens without the professionals who work in the political system, from campaigns to elected offices, from PACs to the parties. Today, we have a guest who has worked at all levels of the political spectrum, from campaign staffer to campaign manager, to political director for an elected official, to political director for a labor union, to executor director of Emily's List, one of the largest political action committees, to CEO of the Democratic National Committee. Amy Dacey is executive director of the Sign Institute of Politics and Policy at American University in Washington, D.C. Amy, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Ted. It's nice to hear you and see you yet again. <laughs> That's right. So every good superhero, Amy, has an origin story. What, what's your origin story? How'd you get into this racket? Well, I have to say, the truth of the matter is, Ted, is I was tricked into it. Um, I was told by my father when I was eight years old that all kids went to Democratic Party meetings and all kids went to drop literature on Saturdays. And I believed him for a time. Um, he was actually running for school board. And uh, that was like my earliest memory of political, you know, political campaigns and public service. And I'm happy to say he won that election. Um, but that's what really got me into it. I grew up in a very politically active, um, public service oriented household. And so from a very early age, it was just all around me. And, you know, we went on to work on more campaigns. And then when I was a junior in high school, he ran for county legislature and he lost that race. And I have to say he lost by literally like five votes. And I think that, you know, some might say my origin story is I've spent my whole career chasing those five votes, you know, um, <laughs> you know how thin a margin can be in politics. And so that left a really big impact on me. And then whether it was academics or my career has been, you know, working in that field since then. You know, our, the, a, a guest on a previous show was former Senator Al Franken, who famously won his first senatorial campaign race by 312 votes. And, and at that time, that was about as narrow a margin as a, a, a federal race was going to be until there was a one vote margin in Virginia in 2018. Mm -hmm. So so those five votes was five times what you needed to get elected to Congress out of Virginia, apparently. Yeah, exactly. And 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 lifelong lessons, you know, for sure, um, you know, in, the, in that respect, um, learning early how every vote counts and that there's math involved in politics, too. So kind of took that with me from there on. Yeah. And right. I've forgiven my dad for not being 100% honest about what kids do on the weekends. But Well, you know, somewhere there's a story here that we can break that that, that an upstate New York school district campaign used child labor, but uh, <laughs> it, it may not. not be the timeliest story. <laughs> so you are presently the executive director of the Sign Institute of Policy and Politics at American University in Washington. Tell us about Sign. What is its mission? Uh, what does it do? Right. Well, the Institute is university-wide. It's only about three years old. I have to say I'm a proud graduate of American University. And when President Sylvia Burwell and 
um, you know, uh, Jeffrey Sign and Samira Sign came up with this concept of having an institute of policy and politics at American University. It was really under the guise about every sector influences the public policy making process and, you know, affects politics. So we really try to convene and collaborate and communicate and bring together, whether it's leaders in business or leaders in the public sector, um, nonprofit journalism and academia to kind of solve some of America's, you know, and globally, some of our biggest problems. So what we do is look to see in local communities, we're certainly seated in, you know, the the heart of of power here in in our nation's capital. And so we capitalize on that as well. And then we do try to bring in international voices as well to kind of shed some light on on these um, relationships and and the policymaking process and how important it is to have different voices in that. And and I recall seeing some of your programs. Uh, Sign is pretty bipartisan in its approach, particularly in who it's trying to attract. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the 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 bottom line is, and it's it's probably newer for me as somebody who who you know kind of had a career in, in more partisan politics. But this is more of a nonpartisan platform. It really does bring in different perspectives. It helps not only our audience and students and alumni and our larger community help to hear different perspectives. So we certainly have people who are well known Republicans and Democrats. Um, like I said, local voices, activists. Um, journalists who who you know are reporting the news and and aren't partisan and you know also pundits that are and so a lot of different perspectives we've been very fortunate to bring in a lot of different people who also talk about a lot of different issues as well there's so many different policy issues out there that are affecting everybody on a day-to-day basis not only here in the states but abroad and so we try to bring some awareness to that and build programs around that as well how to sign and and science program contribute to the political conversation. Well, I think what's important is um, it highlights people working on some of these issues and what they're able to do. We also shed a light on some of the victories of people coming together and working together. I have to say in the last election, um, we really enjoyed kind of breaking down some of these processes. We did a whole series on debating the debates and had people who were either journalists or who were debate prep people or who were, you know, people who who saw this from all different aspects um, kind of talk about politics from an insider's view, not always what we see on, you know, some of the major news networks. And also around the conventions, we had, um, in a really interesting way, AU alumni who were delegates to the convention in this virtual world. I know, you know, you've had guests on that that really put together some of the conventions in an incredible way. But we heard firsthand from delegates who were also AU alums about what their experience is. So we try to not just bring in different voices and, and help not only explain those things, but then we also try to bring people together to try and work on programs that kind of do a deeper dive into some of these important issues. I'm looking forward to the midterm elections because I think we'll be doing some of that work as well. It's going to be a very important election and shining some light not only on the politics of these campaigns, but the issue-based conversations that will be happening as well. I feel like you're the only person I know who's looking forward to the midterm elections. Well, you know, listen, I think we always say that the next election is the most important of our lifetime, and it is until the next election, you know, and and they, I love seeing democracy in action. I love seeing people engaged in voting, and I love to make sure that, you know, um, our, you know, community on campus and our, our um, students are engaged in a way. And it is one of the most politically active, probably the politi- most politically active campus in the country. And so we've got a lot of individuals who will, you know, be looking at this and we want to get them the information they need. Mm. 
you mentioned that you are an American University graduate. So mm-hmm. you graduated from college. Uh, you you ended up in your first political job. What were the jobs that you held prior to becoming, for example, a campaign manager? What was your progression? Yeah, so I went to undergraduate school at Binghamton University. And when I came to American University, I have to say one of my very first jobs in DC was at the AU bookstore. So I mean, I was, you know, certainly trying to to buy the books and you know do everything to be a student. But I worked at the National Foundation for Women Legislators, um, which was actually a nonpartisan group as well. But it really, you know, I've always had this um, desire to, to make sure that more women are engaged in the process. And so this was a network of women legislators, both Democrats and Republicans on the state legislative level, and did a lot of policy advocacy work with them. And as I did that, um, I decided then to move in and to do some campaigns. And my first campaign was for Congressman Maurice Hinchy's reelection campaign. And that was in the Binghamton area where I went to school. But I was on the campaign there. Um, He was successful, I'm happy to say. Um, And then I actually moved on to work for Congresswoman Louise Slaughter in her office um, as her scheduler. And then from there ran her campaign. And then that's when I really started working also into the committees um, for the Congressional Campaign Committee, the Senate Campaign Committee, um, and expanded and worked on campaigns in in that area. When you were working as a scheduler for Congresswoman Slaughter, was that in the district office or in the Washington, D.C. office? No, it was in the Washington, D.C. office. So Um, the seat of power. Seat of power. And literally during the Clinton administration, you know, I was there during impeachment, during some of the huge policy, you know, um, champion championing moments. And to be with a member of the Rules Committee, she was on the Rules Committee, actually. So um, a really important role. And she had been a long serving member. uh, And I learned a lot from her. She's one of my favorite, you know, people. um, And she really defined public service to me, you know, in a very early, very early age. She had a big impact on me. You went from being her scheduler to managing one of her reelection campaigns. What what was that change like? I mean, those are two very drastically different skill sets. Well, I think, you know, in a lot of respects, the scheduler is, is kind of knows every operation, you know, and the congressional is one of the few links that you can have staff that also link up to, to talk and, and, you know, um, share information with the political operation. But I will say that... Um, the scheduler is a unique position because, like I said, you know every aspect of that operation in a way. And so for me to remove myself from the D.C. office and then take a leave and go and do the campaign was incredible because I knew her. I knew the team. I knew the issues that she was championing. And in a great way, it was near the community where I grew up. So I, I think I you know, knew that area um, in a really great way. But, you know, the thing is... We've talked about this before. Campaigns are a business. So so there is budget involved. There's managing staff. There's, you know, you, you definitely have to get the campaign vision out. You have to make sure that you're doing your voter contact and everything. But there's working with consultants. There's there's so many aspects of it that are business related. And sometimes early in your career, you don't have as much experience on the budget, you know, or the managing people front. And so I think that was a really big experience for me. She, it took a lot of trust for her to ask me to run the campaign. She won by the largest market at that point that she ever had. And she was up against a self-funded, you know, millionaire. So it it was a challenge. Um, But, you know, it certainly figured out how to raise the funds we needed, how to get the community, you know, involved. But there were some aspects of it that was, you know, learn on the job for sure. And for a campaign manager, what are you spending your time on? What are you spending your money on? 
Yeah. You know, I think I, and I will say campaigns have evolved a lot since I, you know, first started out, you know, as well, not only in the sheer numbers that, that we've seen, but, you know, we didn't have the internet quite frankly, when I started, you know, and it was early in my career, we didn't have social media. So there's whole, you know, departments, um, parts and components of the budget that didn't really exist, you know, before. There's some things I will say campaigns are simply a conversation with voters. What changes is who's having the conversation, what you're having it about, who you're having it with, and then the means you use to have that conversation. So sometimes the means have changed. So I think, you know, for a campaign manager, you're spending a lot of your time on the messaging, um, both proactive and reactive. Um, you know, there's always a lot of opposition research that goes into your candidate um, to talk about if they're an incumbent. There was a lot of, was she successful at this? Was she, you know, not in some respects, she had a record that you had to defend. Um, so that's a big part of it. And then a big part of it is also going out and finding votes and doing the real field work and community organizing that you have to do for campaigns, which is essential. And there's a virtual component nowadays, but I also think that 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 you know being able to go door to door, having those conversations, getting your candidate out in the community is really important. You're working with your you know, consultants, you're also watching that budget, both sides of the ledger on a daily basis to figure out um, what you have to do. So it's it's literally running like running a company. It's like a multifaceted responsibility when you're the manager um, right. and and you have a date specific that you have to be really successful by. So you mentioned about how the, the means of communication have changed a lot with technological advances in, you know, if we go back to the mid 90s, you had you had print advertising, you had on-air advertising, you had radio advertising, television, but but short of dropping leaflets in a person's mailbox, you weren't necessarily targeting an individual voter with a specific ad. But now with social media and with the, the advances in, in addressable cable TV, you can run different ads for different different homes. Absolutely. I mean, I, I always say in those early campaigns, it was us putting out information and having people come to that. I, I remember hopping in my little little Chrysler LeBaron with the most recent change of traffic. So that meant getting literally a VHS tape, you know, of the ad and going to different, you know, uh, some of the news channels to say, you know, this this is the change of traffic. We got to get this this new ad on the air. I remember faxing, you know, the news clips every day to the consultants and, you know, saying this is what we saw in the local paper. So much of this is real time. But it also means like you can have very tailored messages to individuals. You're you're able to go to them where they're consuming information. Um, there's a benefit to that, certainly, because you want people to be engaged on the issues that they care about, what they want, and to show your candidate is connecting with them on those. But it's also a challenge because it, it takes more resources. It takes a lot more um, to have those individualized conversations. But as I said, it's still a conversation with your voters. Right. We're talking about political operatives with Amy Dacey, executive director of the Sign Institute of Politics and Policy at American University. If you have questions, tweet them to us at BIZ Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. Amy, a, a lot of a lot of managing a challenger campaign is introducing the, the, the candidate to the public and building awareness. How is managing an incumbent campaign different from managing a challenger's campaign? Well, I mean, I think there's still some people who might not know your candidate as well. You know, you do get people in the community that are new, but a lot of it is, you know, people have impressions already of your candidate in a lot of respects. I will say that 
Um, you've got support. You've got a history of what your data shows you of where you did have support. Um, you know, every campaign's new. You can never run your campaign based on, solely on the last one because it's a different campaign and a, a snapshot in time. But you do have some of that historical information to kind of help you understand um, you know, what's happening. But I think a lot of it is showing how that person is advocating for you. How is your life better? How, how have they brought things to the community that has benefited the community um, and the things that they're working on? How do they share your values? And so a lot of that is putting that out, but it's also about being, you know, optimistic and saying, what do you want to do, you know, in the future as, as, as a public servant? Um, and so, you know, an incumbent has some benefits. You know, there you see the incumbency rates, you know, are, are usually high because they are well known. Um, they oftentimes are in the news multiple times on projects that they're working on, especially when we had local news, which is something we could talk about, the change in, in not having these strong centers of local news on some of these uh, candidates and, and members. Um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of it is is, you know, showing people to new people who you are, but reminding, you know, people who you are as well. Um, and then, you know, it's also about contrast, you know, campaigns are about contrast with who your opponent is. And so that's always a big part with the, with an incumbent too, um, to showing what's different than the challenger that wants to, to, you know, replace you in office. Okay. So you, you guided Louise Slaughter to a, 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 a record victory. What was next? Well, I went back to her office and I ended up getting to, to, you know, be like a deputy chief of staff and work on some things. But, you know, I think at that point, um, it's always hard to tell a mentor and a friend that you're ready to move on. But there was an opportunity at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee to be the deputy political director. Um, the year was 2000. Like it was a huge election year, not only nationally, but, you know, at that point, we were all ready for it to be Speaker Gephardt. And I think there was a real interest in trying to take the House. And so I had this opportunity to go work at the committee. And, you know, I, I think she she uh, was happy for me, but, you know, and I stayed in touch with her for a long time, but I think she was also proud to have me go over there. And she was always very active in trying to help elect other members to her caucus. So I think she saw it as a really good thing for me to go over there. Um, it was a dream team. It was an amazing group of people. Um, we won some races. We didn't, you know, we weren't able to, to put um, Mr. Gephardt in the speaker's chair, but um, it was a really tough, you know, cycle, as, as many people know, especially on the national level with everything going on in the presidential campaign. And then, you know, it was happening in both the House and the Senate. And the Democratic Congressional Campaign, campaign Committee, and if I have to keep saying that, I'm going to have a seizure. So we're just going to call it the DCCC, which cool. everyone else That's calls good. it. That's good, the DTRIP. You can even yeah. make it small, smaller, the DTRIP. That's right. So... There are two, each of the parties has two kind of campaign committees, the, the one one for the House, one for the Senate. And so you've got the DTRIP and the DSCC uh, on the Democrat side. What do those committees really do? Well, I think I'd go even farther, Ted, to just kind of explain that, you know, the parties, there's actually the parties like an umbrella concept. And then you just have several individual committees that work under that. That's the Democratic National Committee, who's really responsible for certainly presidential elections and as the, the messaging voice of the National Party. You have the DCCC, that's for House members in the federal government. 
You also have uh, the DSCC that does Senate races. But then you can't forget the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee that does state level races. You have the Democratic Governors Association that governors races. You have, you know, um, groups that also do Secretary of State and Attorney General. So all of those offices do have committees that help work with candidates, both incumbents and challengers, to try to give them the support that they need to win those races. Um, and so, yes, when you look at Congress, there's the DCCC and the DSCC. They've also evolved and expanded and certainly um, become more involved in those, you know, um, races, you know, over the years. And certainly when I was there, you know, we had several um, that were targeted and especially on the House side, it's evolving. You know, new people come on the list. You have to do a lot of recruiting to go out and try and find candidates. Um, so it was uh, it was a really interesting look at the whole country and the and the races that were in play that year. So the the campaign committees are going out; they're recruiting candidates. They are supporting candidates with presumably advertising, with funding, with uh, with logistical help to the extent that they need to. Mm-hmm. But but they're there as sort of the umbrella for the effort to build a majority in in wherever whatever whatever subgroup we're talking about be it the house the senate the governorships or or what have you right the goal is to get the majority in in those chambers for sure and and from an organizational standpoint do they all kind of look alike you know they all have an executive director they all have a political director they all have a fundraising director they all have kind of the same pyramid-like staff functions I think there's a lot of similarities, you know, for sure. I think some of them at size and scope, uh, you know, uh, they've gotten bigger too. You know, we started out, they had regional political desks that worked with the campaign. Sometimes you had a regional communications. Now they have digital support, social media support. Um, you know, certainly there's a lot that that's helping with fundraising. Absolutely. So whatever legally they, you know, can do to support, you know, campaigns, um, they're able to do. They do look similar. I think the national committee looks a little different because so much of that there's large, there's supporting the infrastructure of the the national party, um, which is comprised of certainly chairs and vice chairs and and the executive committee and constituency groups. So that's a little different in scope. Um, most of them are, you know, nationally based. Uh, not many of them have regional people sitting in other offices. But now with our virtual world, um, it you know makes it different. But a lot of times those staff travel about, but they they tend to be similar um, in scope. Well, and the great thing about Zoom is that everything is a regional office now. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. You were deputy political director of the DCCC. What is that job? So I think a lot of it was um, certainly supporting the political director who was a mentor and friend of mine at the time. It was Karen Johansson, and she was incredible. But it was setting up briefings, you know, for candidates. We often did issue briefings for them. It was working with the regional desk to make sure that they had the information that they needed. There was some candidates. Uh, you know, we also want anybody who wants to run deserves a phone call returned and questions answered. So there was probably like 80 campaigns on any given basis that that might not have been the most targeted at the time, but I was still answering their questions and reaching out and working with them and certainly, you know, supporting and putting together a lot of the meetings that happened. Um, a lot of it is is helping the staff either putting together, you know, budgets or, you know, things that that they needed. But but also there was a lot of support, not only to the political team, but, you know, to, to other parts as a liaison to other parts of the community committee as well. Thinking broadly, what if you had to explain what a political director or a political operation mm-hmm. in a campaign or in a committee does, what what is what is the what is the purpose of the political function in a campaign? Are they defining the message? Are they interpreting 
the electorate? What What is a political director doing? Well, I think a lot of what a political director can do, and it can and can certainly vary, but a lot of it is community based. It's talking to you know affinity groups that that you know work and support sometimes the the you know candidate reaching out for a consensus. It's working with um, putting together and making sure that the outreach that's done politically is like local leaders, um, local you know groups as well, and certainly you know a lot of times the politics is the glue that works with the field program, works with the community communications program to make sure that's all effectively working together to have those conversations with voters. So, you know, it's it's different. I had a different role when I was at the DSCC. Some of it was more I was assigned more campaigns and worked on individual campaigns and kind of help build them and, and work with them, you know, to do that. I certainly also had some infrastructure where, you know, we were looking at the the whole map holistically, um, you know, and, and how do we support these, you know, candidates and working with other departments. But you know, a lot of that is working with other local leaders, like trying to gain, you know, support and consensus, you know, with a lot of the groups and the, the leaders that could support your candidate, whether it's the incumbent or it's the um, the challenger as well. It sounds like a lot of it sounds like it's a, a blend between kind of defining determining what the message is mm-hmm. and also building support or helping to move the needle of public sentiment. Around yeah, I mean, I issues. think it's that. I think it's also being a great liaison to, you know, the consultants, to the other people working in other departments of, you know, what you're hearing and, you know, what feedback you're getting from community members and others. And so, you know, I think it's it's a really, you know, important role in a lot of that. But I think the thing I like about it is it does have to work with a lot of the other um, parts and components of a campaign. And how does that role differ when you're in a campaign versus when you're a political director in an elected official's office? Well, I mean, it's not an official role in a, in a you know, official office. The, I, I think a lot of times they have their political staff that, you know, um, certainly helps them. And that's the way that it's, you know, set up. But I, I think that what you have is district um, staff are often, you know, the backbone of any operation for, you um, for an office and a lot of times they're doing the community outreach they're doing the constituent services that really have the pulse point on what's going on in the community and so i I think that a lot of the reason we were so successful on congresswoman slaughter's re-election campaign as well is just the incredible staff that represented her in the district because those are the ones that are with the community every day helping people showing that actually public servants want to be helpful and want to support their communities. And so I think it's a a really big part. Um, So, you know, that role doesn't exist in an office, but like there are definitely roles that help support, you know, from the governing side um, for that community outreach. You know, you talk about um, constituent connections and and being close to the constituents. You know, we can look back a few years when, uh, when the Maryland Senate seat was up for grabs and Donna Edwards, a congresswoman, was running and uh, her, her campaign was, was off the ground. But one of, the, one of the big criticisms lobbed against her from some of her fellow elected officials in the same party during the primary was that she wasn't, she wasn't making sure that the office was good on constituent service. That, that they weren't maintaining a connection with the constituents and actually that the constituents were going to her primary challenger's office, who was of the same party and was a neighboring district congressperson to get work that, that her office wasn't touching with. So it's, it, it, you know, the, the connection to, to the constituents is critical. It, it absolutely is. And, and I think, you know, a lot of times, 
you know, talking to any new member is it should be a priority and it yeah. should be something that they look at. Some of the most successful sen- long-term senators as well were well known for their constituent outreach. So, Okay. Well, we're talking with Amy Dacey, Executive Director of the Sign Institute of Politics and Policy and former CEO of the Democratic National Committee. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're going to take a short break for some messages from our sponsors. Stick around and we'll be right back. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Gavin Salmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're talking political professionals with Amy Dacey, Executive Director of the Sign Institute of Politics and Policy at American University in Washington, D.C. Amy, before the break, we were talking about your time as Deputy Political Director of the DCCC. What came after that? So I um, did a, a stint. Actually, I built the. Uh, I went from the DCCC. There was a. It was after the cycle. There was um, new leadership, you know, there, and there wasn't really a new role for me, you know, to do different work. So I actually was offered a great job at Emily's List. I've done a couple of tours of duty at Emily's List. That was my first one, and I put together their state legislative program, created it there, um, and was uh, working on that when I was called over to to be the deputy political director at the Senate campaign committee which, you know, I struggled with that. Do I stay with Emily's List? Do I go to the Senate committee? But I had an incredible experience working at the Senate committee. 
um, learned a lot. I, I think, you know, there was um, races that were really targeted in, you know, South Dakota, which I spent time in North Dakota. Like I think of the states that, you know, that I was in at that time. And I even went down and, and was lead on, you know, Mary Landrieu's runoff campaign, which, um, you know, that year we uh, were very focused after the election on, on that race. So I was at Emily's List building up the state program and then moved over to the to the DSCC. And is is that what 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 life on a campaign in a campaign generally is? Are are you just even if you're in a committee, are you basically going to places that you wouldn't or the otherwise go and and just camping out and working there? I think it's one of the greatest benefits of working in a political life is that you get to see so many parts of the country and in so many, you know, not just the the big cities and states. I will say um, I, I have a pretty big birthday coming up this year, but um, before that, I am visiting my 50th state um, in Alaska in September. So I've been to every 50 state, every one of the 50 states. And I can tell you so much of that is due to traveling for campaigns, working and going, you know, communities. Of course, being on the national campaign in 2004, I saw so many states, you know, with my experience there. But yeah, it's it's allowed me, you know, somebody who didn't know if they travel, you know, this country to be in every single one of the 50 states. So I'm really grateful for that. Interesting. After the DSCC, what was there? Well, the DSCC, we had, you know, Jim Jordan was the executive director and it was heading into a presidential, you know, election cycle and John Kerry had decided to run for president. And so Jim was going to be the campaign manager and and he reached out and tried to recruit some of us to come over to the campaign. And that's where I went. I went to John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004. Um, in the primary, I was one of his regional political directors, and I had like 30 states that I was in charge of trying to build in infrastructure and support, you know, in all those states. Um, and then when he won the nomination, I went on to be his traveling political director and was on the plane with him all of 2004 and traveling around with the traveling team um, and helping to support his efforts from that perspective. How does being a political director for a, a super regional or national scope campaign differ from being a political director for a bunch of individual, very focused campaigns or or one one state wide campaign, for example? Well, I think, you know, in the beginning, it's not unlike any campaign. You're trying to get, you know, support, whether they're endorsements, local endorsements, community support in all of these states. And certainly there's a lineup, you know, uh, the early states of Iowa and New Hampshire, you have people who are solely working, you know, on those states. But my role really as a regional political director was reaching out to people, DNC members, local elected officials, community leaders, sharing with them what John Kerry's vision was, talking to them about who he was setting up, you know, meetings and events. If he was traveling into one of my states is making sure that you worked with the other teams to have a really great trip. So people got to know him, got to, to, you know, gather more support and certainly get more momentum as you, as you go through the political calendar, um, that is a presidential primary campaign. Do you, does a political, does a campaign have different, different messages, different goals, different, different political, I guess, influences state by state, region by region? I think you can definitely localize, especially, you know, um, you as a regional political director, I learned what issues really mattered in that state and shared that with the campaign to say, when we're here, we really should make sure that we touch on those issues. And, you know, the great thing about uh, Senator, uh, Secretary Kerry, um, he knew it, it never... 
overwhelmed me when we would be in any situation and somebody would bring up a question about some policy issue and he knew about it. So there were issues he championed. There was issues he certainly worked on in the Senate and his long you know, public service career. And he knew about them and understanding what was important to local communities. He was able to talk about that. So that was another part you know, of the job and being able to do that. I think you know we're a very big country and regionally, state by state, community by community, people you know have priorities and you have to respect that and, and talk to people about what matters the most to them. How much of a political director's job is responding to outside influence and how much is trying to to define the message for the campaign? You know, how much is how much is trying to frame the discussion versus responding to outside events? I think a lot of it is delivering the message. Certainly we can get information and share that with the amazing communications team and you know others that are putting together the strategy. But a lot of it is is taking this incredible profile of who your candidate is, the message and where they stand on the issues and being so well versed in that to be able to go into every community and deliver that. And I think a lot of times, even if the candidate's not with us, you know, we're spokespeople and surrogates who go to events and talk about our candidate and share why we're supporting them and why they should. And, you know, I think a lot of that is is sharing with it. Um, you know, in the political role, it, it is the, the information does flow two ways, but I think we really counted on the communications team, the research team to give us information about this long, you know, public service career um, of our candidate. And then also not knowing that we don't have, you know, information on every single issue, but they could provide that for us when we were going in to talk to people. Right. And, and, and so the Kerry campaign came to an end. What next? Oh, well, I, you know, it was it was a little overwhelming. I, I think, you know, for me, it, it was a pure example of how much heart and soul you can give to a campaign. I, I you know, to this day, I consider him a mentor and friend and and John Kerry, I respected so much. And I thought so much I wanted him to be our president because I think he would do a great job. So it's hard not to take it very personally. It's a hard loss, you know, especially when you see yourself devote you know, two years, sometimes two years plus, day in, day out. I mean, these are very, you know, uh, labor intensive, you know, labors to be on these campaigns. So some of it was he had, you know, certainly assets, he had money, he had a network, a national network. And he immediately said to me, you know, actually, I was obviously, you know, upset at his, you know, concession speech, but he just kept saying to me, don't you be upset, we've got a lot more work to do. And and that kind of was surprised, why is he saying this to me? But he went on to create a leadership pack so that he could use his voice and his resources to try and get back the House and Senate. And I will say in 2006, he had a huge impact working with both, you know, the committees and leadership, um, you know, with, with Harry Reid and, and um, Nancy Pelosi at the time to you know, um, help get seats in the House and Senate to certainly, you know, use um, his voice and his resources to try and help win races across the country. And so I was a part of that. I was his national political director. We had him traveling for candidates. We had us endorsing candidates, um, raising money. We, you know, would raise money online for candidates um, because he had this amazing, you know, email list. And so that commitment stayed on. He did the work in the Senate, but he also knew how important it was to bring new voices into the political world. And so, you know, it was an incredible opportunity to stay with him and to to see him go back to the Senate and work doubly as hard and then also have this investment in the political um, future of the party. 
you mentioned you mentioned packs, and this was a leadership pack. Um, and and I want to skip over a couple of things that I knew you did in the interim, but you you had mentioned previously about your first stint at Emily's List, mm-hmm. um, and and you ultimately found your way back to Emily's List. So let's talk about that. Well, you know, it's it's funny because one of my this is the other thing about working on campaigns is you have this incredible friend peer network that you build over the years you're in you're in the you know just campaign battle with these individuals and you know you spend so much of your time with them and forge these incredible friendships and i had met um stephanie shriak at the dscc and we had worked together there i've been through a lot together there um we're down on mary landrew's um runoff campaign together and in an interesting way, she had decided to go toward the Dean campaign. I went toward the Kerry campaign and we agreed to meet, you know, no matter what the, the results were. But, you know, as uh, we always stayed in touch, always stayed friends. But this incredible individual who had done so many important campaign jobs herself was chosen as the president of Emily's List. And, you know, I remember going to visit her in her office and then her talking to me about, I'd like you to come and work on this with me. So in an incredible way, somebody I really cared about and respected um, asked me to come be executive director for an organization I really cared about and issues that matter to me, you know, women's empowerment, getting more women elected, the whole thread that Ellen Malcolm put together, you know, 30 plus years ago um, was important. So, you know, I went to work at Emily's List and there was a lot to do to, you know, move it forward, you know, so much was changing with campaigns, so much was changing with the women's movement. And so we were at such an interesting time to move the organization forward and was really proud of the work we had done there. And, and Emily's List is a PAC whose, whose mission is to get elected um, pro-choice Democratic women to right. to office. Uh, for those West Wing fans, it was referred to as the, the women's group with the funny name. Um, what were you doing at Emily's List? So as executive director, it really is doing the day-to-day operations. Um, Stephanie was certainly the strategic partner and led the strategy for the organization, but so much of what she did was also external in fundraising and you know working with candidates, with being out there at events and supporting the candidates. So there was a lot of times that you know she was on the road. Obviously, going through the strategy and the commitment to what our goals and and how we were going to move forward. But I managed the day to day budget, managed the team, you know, uh, made sure that our marketing, you know, our communications, our our fundraising, everything was moving forward toward our goal. And so, um, a real partnership, you know, and helping with the board relations because we had incredible board members, you know, as well that were invested in the organization. And so really being the eyes and ears for any leader of an organization as well. And the on the ground person who shared everything that was happening and, you know, made sure we were making the right decisions to to keep everything moving forward and, and making sure to not only grow and expand Emily's list and its reach, but also to make good decisions and, and to, to manage the organization well. Election laws impact how political action committees operate in a in a strange and, and some might call it Byzantine <laughs> fashion how does a pack interact with other political entities with with campaigns with parties with labor groups well it's easier on the candidate side campaign committee side because you know they call that you know they used to call it i think they still do the hard side of campaigns and so you can communicate in one way uh it's also different between federal and non-federal campaigns i, I will say we had a very standard operating procedure with people who were running for Congress and with Senate. We had individualized and had to know the state-based law to figure out how to work with a gubernatorial candidate, or could we do a training for state legislators in that state? There was, you know, that's where you get the diversity of like 
everything that you can do and how you, you know, can work with everyone, you know, on that. So it's something you have to, you know, be really on top of. You have to make sure that that you're doing everything to make sure to protect the organization and the candidates that you're working for. But there's a lot of different layers to, to how you can operate with them. And how much how much of your time or how much of the organization's time is dedicated to to what is broadly called compliance, making sure that you know you're not running afoul of, of these barriers. I think a lot of it, I think you have to have a strong compliance director. And we did have incredible staff that looked not only through our finances, but we had teams that would help advise, you know, campaigns uh, where we legally could that, you know, on what they were doing. And you have a good legal team that that works with you. But it's it's important, not only, like I said, to make sure that the reputation and what you're doing, but again, there's the federal system, there's a the non-federal system. You have to make sure everything you're doing, if you have to file in that state, if you don't, like how do you, you know, uh, a lot of times you have to be, you know, public, uh, you know, certain number of days before a campaign. So, um, you know, a lot of that for the political action committee is like understanding and knowing those and being, you know, certainly flexible and being able to pivot to make sure that you're you're following all those for for very different scenarios. One of the the I guess hallmark characteristics of today's current political landscape is voting laws, and yeah. and and in particular, um, voting laws that are designed to to minimize the number of people who can vote. How do you what what does the future look like for for these types of organizations, for Emily's list, for other large political action committees? How how are they going to evolve? How do they respond to to partisan changes in 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 the legal landscape surrounding voting? Well, I think that, you know, campaigns are always evolving, you know, sometimes whether it's finance, whether it's voting laws, like you have to be on top of everything that's happening in your state. I will in in your community, whatever race you're running. I will say that's why I said earlier that, you know, campaigns are just conversations with voters, but you never run the campaign that you ran, you know, two years ago, four years ago, because so much can and, and will change. I think for organizations like Emily's List, you certainly have to partner and make sure that there's strength in numbers that, you know, organizations that care about making sure everybody has the right to vote, that has access to voting, um, is working together to not only, you know, make sure campaigns have the best campaign they have, but that those people you're reaching and asking for you to vote for them have the opportunity and have the ability to vote in their elections. So, you know, it's it's a big part of what you have to do to make sure. Um, and as we've seen recently, there's certainly a lot of forces that are trying to limit that or change that. And it's a constant constant to stay on top of it um, to make sure that, you know, people aren't losing their rights to vote or access to vote. One day you're at work at Emily's List and you get a phone call. And the phone call you get is about coming in to take over the Democratic National Committee. Yeah, I, you know, I knew certainly the team around that and, and they had been looking for individuals and, you know, they said, would you, you know, we talked about it and it was like, would you consider it? And, you know, one of the things was I immediately went to Stephanie, you know, and said, um, and I told them, you know, at the DNC, like, I have to have this conversation, you know, with Stephanie, we're committed to this. And so I went and talked to her and, you know, we both felt so strongly that, you know, uh, making sure that the party's strong, making sure that, you know, campaigns and candidates and other committees have a strong national party that can be a partner in all of these things. And that, 
so much of what the party can and should be doing is to reach new voters, um, to bring back, you know, individuals that just show that the party's sharing their values and do that. So it was a huge opportunity. It was um, certainly one of, you know, a big challenge as well, because uh, there's a lot of expectations on the national party. Not everybody knows what, what it does, but, you know, the decision was made to go over. And uh, so I did that um, in January of 2014, I believe. And this is shortly after the 2012 presidential reelection. Mm-hmm. What was what, what was the uh, what was the state of affairs? What was what was happening with the DNC then? I mean, you you were coming up on a midterm. Um, yep. a, a lot of resources had gone into the 2012 campaigns. What was the state of play when you got there? Yes. Well, I mean, we had uh, a good team in place in a lot of respects, a lot of good people doing the work and moving it forward. Um, There was debt at the DNC. I mean, I I will say it was winning debt from 2012. And I think everybody was supportive of making sure to have the resources to make sure President Obama had his second term. But that was um, that was really the charge to try and get the committee out of that debt which was, I think, around 20 million, you know, when I got there to not only relieve the debt, but then to make sure we're building, you know, up for the midterms. How can we support and how do we get, you know, this this entity ready for a national election? Because that's the one thing you learn about campaigns, you know, um, just the minute you're closing down one, you're really having to start and build up for the next one. And, you know, for a lot of these committees, it is a drawdown and then, you know, you have to rebuild. And so the biggest challenge, I think, for running, you know, the national party is that you're become a campaign operation during a year of an election, but you're also a long-term organization. So, you know, it was looking at the strength of the marketing and the fundraising, you know, operation. It was trying to figure out how to fundraise and, and get out of this, you know, debt, but it's also looking at the other side of the ledger and figuring out what are we spending wisely on? What do we have to change? Um, how do we get people, you know, invested, you know, in the work that we're doing? And what role would the DNC play in a midterm, which is, you know, much more of a congressional Senate play, but like, what's the role during that time? And then, you know, I always said that, you know, in a primary, these campaigns, these, um, uh, you know, candidates are like laptops, computers, and everybody's running off on a laptop. The role of the DNC is to be that plug in the wall, and it has to have a good energy source. It has to be working. It has to be ready because once the nomination process is over, candidates need to be able to plug into their national party and be strong for the general election campaign that happens very fast. And you need the resources to make sure that you're competitive and and you know can win. It's also party building. It's it's making sure you know uh, to support state parties. I will say. Even though we were in debt, we increased state party support by 50%. You know, um, the first year we were there with the chairwoman, we did that. Um, and so I think there was a lot of investment early on, even in a scenario that we were trying to, to alleviate some of that winning debt. So when you were, and, and, and I, I should point out the job before you took it was not chief executive officer. The, that, that position was created it had been called different. I think at one time it had been called that. It's it's the title of executive director. I think, you know, in some respects, uh, you can't underestimate how big a business the, the National Party is. I mean, right. you know, I, I do think people could appreciate that it is at times when in its fullest hundreds of million of dollars are running through that committee. And so it really was, especially at the time, important to say that we were making decisions that were smart, that used our resources wisely, that not only raised funds in the most meaningful, smart way, but also were spending them in the most meaningful, smart way. 
there is a chair of the National Party. At the time that, that you were there, it was Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Um, more recently, it was Tom Perez. Right. What is the difference between the chair and the CEO? Well, I think, again, you know, not unlike my relationship with with Stephanie, they run the strategy, they direct, you know, decision making on a lot of the strategy movements about what the party is doing for the National Party. Sometimes you're in coordination with your party's leader who is a sitting president. Sometimes there's not a sitting president. So, you know, I I think that's why you see differences between the way different chairs you know have to operate. But a lot of it is that spokesperson. You're the national spokesperson for the party. Um, You know, I I think uh, you saw both chairs on TV all the time and they're fundraising. They're getting the resources. And then they're also, you know, reaching out to those caucus and count, you know, um, uh, councils. It's talking to the DNC members. It's traveling into states. It's working with state parties. Um, so it's a lot. It's it's a it's a big job. And I, and I think the commitment that people have to to build party infrastructure, but also, you know, win campaigns. Uh, that's that's kind of the thread throughout. But a lot of it is resources. A lot of it is making sure people understand the values of the Democratic Party and that people have a place, you know, that they they the party shares their values and they should want to support the party and the candidates they support. And how is the National Party structured? You know, you've got volunteers who who are sent up from the states. You've got a professional staff. You've got committees all over the place. You've got elected officials. Kind of understanding that we have three minutes left, so take one of them and just give us a really quick organization chart of how all no, this comes together. I think the greatest together. thing about, I know I can speak to the Democratic Party, certainly is is its diversity. So you have this chairperson, you have the professional staff, um, departments that certainly look at all the priorities in a campaign and a party building scenario, but you also have incredible vice chairs that show the diversity um, of the campaign. And then you also have an executive committee that works with those individuals to make sure that the business of the campaign is running, you know, the committee is running smoothly. And then, you know, you have caucus and council chairs who talk to certain constituencies and make sure that they're represented and organized with them um, as well. And you have DNC members, you know, from each state. And then um, there's been times where they've, you know, the state party structure has come underneath the DNC or has been separate, but they always support it. And I think it's also working, you know, with all those various state parties. So there's a lot of different layers to the party. I think all of it makes it stronger. Um, but I, I, I think that there's, like you said, the professional staff, there's individuals in a lot of those roles, and all of them play a part to, to try and make sure that there's a winning campaign and long-term party building. And that's the life of the political professional. <laughs> Amy, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Amy Dacey is executive director of the Sign Institute of Politics and Policy at American University in Washington, D.C. She's on Twitter at Amy K. Dacey. We'll post links to her social media on the show's webpage in this episode's show notes. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Kara Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. 